Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And we are on the Untold train once again. Uh, this time we're doing the longest Untold ever. Uh, maybe too long. That'll be a point of discussion. Uh, we're doing Swamp Kings, the all-inclusive story about the dynasty that is the Florida Gators under Urban Meyer's reign in the early aughts or mid to early aughts. So I was stoked for you to see this because I know you're not a huge college football fan. I know that puts you in a sort of outsider perspective to it, and it might have been a little hard to fully get on board, but I was curious what you took away from it and what your perception of college football is from this or like any sort of takeaways you might have between like college ball and pro football. Yeah, that's a good one, because I think this one, piggyback off where you start, I didn't realize that this was like the longest untold series. Which is kind of a good thing, like I said, for someone who, you know, like an outsider of college football, I feel like it filled in a lot of gaps in my knowledge to make me really feel like these rivalries, the significance of the region, the significance of the school he's coming to, more so some, uh, I'd say, than like Johnny Manziel's story, even Monty Teo, like we covered, right? I get the significance of those players. I remember them, you know, even peripherally from the news. Kind of same with, but we'll get into like how peripherally I remember these players, like like Tebow and Percy Harvin, you know, Hernandez, a lot of big players obviously are, are, are covered in this, but this filled in the gaps in a way that made me like want more right away. And I, I, that's what I mean, like in a good way, I, I guess it like is, is four episodes, right? It was like four episodes where I'm coming back and like ready for the next one. It made me just so fascinated with we're one Urban Meyer as the anchor point of this. It is great. And like the way we look at the dynasty is me as someone not knowing about it, like the ups and downs, the positioning of it all, the way it calls back some of my, you know, passive knowledge of like, again, some of the controversies of when they started getting in trouble, all the players and all that, and really seeing uh, urban side and their side of it was so much different than what we usually go with untold, where it's more to scandalize the player and kind of, kind of shame the players in some ways. Um, because shame might be a little hard work because Untold's pretty fair about it. But this one, I think you really sympathize more with the players when we get to that stage, uh, which we'll talk about. But to start you off, yeah, this made me like a casual fan, if you will, of college football through this series. Perfect answer. Yeah, pretty much everything that I was hoping for, like a sense of like the regionalism of college mm-hmm. football, right? Because there's fan bases that are based around cities and regions in the NFL, of course. A Philly resident is going to be a Eagles fan, right? Yeah. Or Buffalo uh, fan's going to be a Buffalo fan. Like, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but there's nothing like being like an Alabama fan, right? Yeah. Or, or being a tradition. Yeah. The, yeah, like the history. That's the other thing, the, the, the unspoken history, the history of college and like how the length of time compared to NFL is really, NFL really minuscule compared to that. You know, it's something I don't really think about just because the way, like you said, I digest NFL and the way NFL is marketed to the consumers. And there's nothing like one of those SEC games that has 100,000 people all in orange in Tennessee <laughs> or all in red in Alabama. And I'm sorry, like the NFL never captures that to me. Like there's some great atmospheres in the NFL, but it just never captures, I don't know, the intensity of a college atmosphere sometimes. Uh-huh. It's just next level. I think it's because it's steeped in that tradition that is yeah. that is so regional um, and so local. It's like has all of the small town and communal elements of high school football, but on the biggest stage, it's got mm-hmm. all the national media attention and all the money to make it, you know, it's not as big of a money making machine as the NFL, right? And it's not the yeah. NFL, but it is aired every Saturday on every major, you know, network. It's mm-hmm. on every platform. We all have access to it yeah. as well, right? So it 
is a spectacle. And then this was my favorite probably period of time for college football. It's going through an existential crisis right now as well. So I find it very interesting. Well, first of all, we've talked about this a lot, right? With NIL, um, they're allowing the entrance of money into the recruiting process is fine, but it's really putting the whole scene through a lot of growing pains and transitional pains. And it's gone to the state where the leagues and the schools and the universities are now money first. So traditions that are 100, 120 years old are completely dissolving before our eyes out of TV deals like Mm -hmm. UCLA and USC, for example, the left, the Pac-12 now, it was a Pac-10 for a long time because they weren't happy with the money they were going to get from Apple TV, basically. Mm -hmm. And then everyone left. So that league demolished. It just completely collapsed in just this offseason. And with that goes, like like I just said, a hundred year of traditions of rivalries and all this, this pomp. And it's very bittersweet. Like it's exciting. There's going to be some new dynamics at play, uh-huh. but there's also going to be a loss. It's it, I, for some older fans who truly like yeah, that's a big shift. <laughs> yeah. Who truly love it. Like, like my dad, right? Like I think it's, it's hard. He keeps reading it and keeps texting me. And like, I could tell he, he's, he's going through it with this. I understand. Like, it's like, that's his thing. And he looks forward to those games. And there's something about that tradition. Like, He'll still watch it and he'll still appreciate it. He'll develop new ones and change is fine and it's inevitable. But it's there's something sad when you like you suddenly can't really play most of your rivalries yeah. or you know what I mean? You don't have that sense of something. regionalism. Yeah. So like why I went on that aside was that like the regionalism is in a a moment of disarray. Like Cal and Stanford just joined the ACC. That means they will be playing the likes of like Miami, everything in like the Atlantic Coast Conference. Oh, so wow. we're talking Northern California. Yeah, cross country. country for every single game. That's their league. It it's just truly bizarre. And the thing that's oddest of all is that not only the football team has to do this realignment, but when they there's a realignment with leagues, every team. So you're talking lacrosse, volleyball, yeah, hockey. They will have to do that as well. Like those programs don't all have like that same funding and stuff, right? Like at all. It's it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> also, we forget like we're talking about like they're pro athletes. They're like yeah. kids still, like you know. Exactly. You're, and you're, they have to they're students. That's the other thing I should say. They're, they're, stu- they're students. Like. They're student athletes, and they're uh, going to have to juggle those flights and trips for away games with their work and all on top of all that. It's something's gonna boil over or something's going to happen. I know it. My guess is that it will only be the two big sports. Maybe the only sport will be football that actually does the realignment and the other things will, they'll work out a way so that they stay intact, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, once again, I'm sorry for getting no, it's good to know. Like, so I like when you yeah. fill in this information for folks like me. Yeah. But I think that that is important when I'm watching this because this took me back to a time when all of this chaos was not yet spun okay. on the landscape of college football. To me, it's one of the true heydays of college football. It's like at the tail end of Pete Carroll's regime at SC. Okay. So the West Coast was thriving. Then you had Alabama and they were thriving. So you had the South that was amazing. And you had the West Coast that was amazing. And those are the two essences to me of college football. Mm-hmm. And usually it's one or the other, like the past decade as well. Anywhere west of the like the Colorado River has been pretty much garbage. Like we've, 
I say we because I'm such a fan of uh-huh. Pacific college football, but like none of the big bowl games have gone our way. We haven't even been in like the BCS in in like years. So we become irrelevant recently. Uh-huh. And so this was a time when even though our focus on this episode is the SEC, is the South, it was distributed. There was parity across the country. So it was just truly a cool moment. And what was fun for me was particularly this year, well, I don't know, we cover a few years, but the year that Florida goes to the national championship, right? Mm -hmm. They play that last game. It becomes a side narrative that they go in at halftime with a big lead and they learn that UCLA pulled the upset of USC. Did you catch that part? Yeah, I remember that part happening. That was the game that I went to. That was the greatest game I've ever been to. And we had season tickets just to go to that game because that game's always like astronomically more expensive. Uh And so to me, it was this amazing tie-in because I experienced that day and like a magical sports event, like the best game I've ever been to and probably will always ever be. I mean, it had the most epic energy. It was a sold out like 95,000 at the Rose Bowl, half SC, half UCLA. And it was so feisty that like um, between the third and the fourth quarter, both teams entirely went on the field about like 20 yards of each other and just started jumping and screaming and cussing at each other for like five (laughs) minutes as the stadium just like was on their feet, just roaring. It was a whole nother level. They both got like, 20 penalties it was crazy they like gave him 20 penalties and just like neutralized it all so no one got in trouble basically it just was like the most epic thing ever and so to me it was just like oh that sealed it when i was watching like the second episode and i was Uh already so on board loving this really microscopic treatment of the florida gators but also not knowing too much i knew tebow he was phenomenon and he was just like amazing and i knew that urban meyer and them had just quickly risen to prominence again because he was the Utah coach Mm -hmm. and he was very good at Utah, but I wasn't following them too cleanly. And I remember learning that we affected like the whole BCS picture. We knew that that's why we went to that game as a UCLA fan. Uh It was to ruin and spoil USC's year. USC Uh was going to the championship. We ruined that and Florida went instead. So it's just (laughs) this funny thing that like this whole documentary would be so different if they didn't go to that championship and win that championship. And the only reason they ever had even the chance to, the way it works in college football, is that UCLA had to do this once-in-a-lifetime upset. They were unranked. They were not a winning team. They were like 28-point underdogs that game and won 13-9. It was like a, it was a glitch in the matrix, basically. So it was exciting. But Let's get back to the Gators and let's get back to that energy in the locker room. What did you think about the locker room? The locker room of this team, I oh, think, is why yeah, I uh, love that and like the workout sessions they showed and the intensity. Like, let's uh, give context, right? Is like Ruben Meyer is like a fucking like boot camp instructor. It's kind of like his mentality, right? He's like a grind, hardcore, like we need to be like preparing for war, right? And I love those scenes of them like just pushing each other like to the limits, like they're like struggling. Uh, they talk about how they went overboard, like I'm, I'm butcher players, but you know, they talk about, you know, beating up dudes, not doing workouts and uh, really getting into it, but seeing like the joy and harmony and struggle of those workouts to me, that's probably the best part about this. Cause then when you get the actual games and you see like the hits and you see the big plays and them recapping it, that landed harder than anything I've seen in a long time in the realm of sports, like recap. I mean, we, our podcast is all about sports recaps, right? Lately, right? From like American Gladiators, we've got some really good ones. 
But this one, like, you know, the recap and then seeing the film. Oh my God. That was like next level. Here's a, here's a comparison. I'm literally seeing some of these guys get drilled. And I'm thinking like Kirk Cousins, and then, like the growing. I'm like, if this dude was Mike W, be just groaning like Kirk Cousins and then some, you know, it's that level of like, of synergy, really. It's, it's, it's really unique. Like the, the, the editing between telling the story sometimes prior and then showing the game and then having a recap was part of my favorite thing. Cause like I said, I hadn't watched any of these games, but I was super invested in the recap and like, and just like the intensity of their story and the way, you know, each guy's giving their different perspectives from the story of Irving Meyer, like throwing his headset on the ground and the player picking up and telling him, look, man, if we can't stop seven fucking points, we don't deserve to be champions. Now get back out there and leave, you know, stuff like that is just like, I'm like, damn, like that's like super inspiring. And just, you know, that's what really led me as a viewer through this. Like, honestly, this is one of those ones that I would say would be bingeable if I, if it wasn't for my schedule, I would have just kept watching this one probably, but splitting it up was good because it, it is like four episodes, but I think it's structured, I will say like pretty flawlessly the way we get Urban Meyer's origin, his story, where he fits into, you know, to to football in the South, not just the school, right, where he's coming from, to him selecting these certain players. I love the, the way they give us the front, you know, that season where they're almost there, the additions they make with Tebow, the two quarterback system for a bit, like super fascinated by all that. But the, the way they set it all up and then give us the game was very cinematic and what is really a documentary. That's one thing I kept finding. Like they had these really cool like moments where I'm like, this is like watching, you know, like, like a movie, like watching like any given Sunday or some of those things. But like, you know, it's history. You can Google the fact of it, find the outcome, but you're still invested. It reminds me, I would say of um, when we covered Wrexham, right? Where I'm interested in the score of a game, right? And I'm like, like I said, something you could look up, but like the highlights are so well crafted and the knowledge of what you know about X players on the field and what they're doing, what their struggle is, their story really it just elevates that live game to something I guess like I'm saying things as I'm speaking through this now like movies don't really do right and that's something we're finding with these Netflix series I think this one did it probably the best I love that you got into that when they're doing the locker room I forget what they call them but when they have to push the weight on the floor they're going so hard that they're throwing up they're puking yeah they're doing races pretty much right you have to race the guy across from you and get across yeah. from it and cross yeah. the line right it was phenomenal. And it, it was just a true testament to like what would happen and what did happen to a team that has a bunch of five four-star recruits and just brings in this like Navy SEAL-like mentality. Mm-hmm. And you got to give a shout out to the, I think his name, Brandon Seiler. Brandon Seiler and Urban Meyer were like a, a tandem. They were a duo. You can't have one without the other. You can't just have a coach who's trying to discipline and put this militant mentality into a team without at least one player that's fully on board. And we see a few other linebackers who end up being the stars of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, like, especially his spikes, uh, right? Yeah. Was that his name? His successor, the guy he I takes onto the field. Spikes, I might be wrong. There's two linebackers basically, and they were both all stars. The difference is that one was a raw rock guy, a guy that wanted to push it to 11 every day, every second. He had the dog in him, you know, he had the, he had just like that animalistic intensity in him. Mm-hmm. And the other guy didn't want to put in the effort at all. He just wanted to play ball. Like he was really good. And it was really interesting to see that dynamic shift after they win yeah. the first national championship. He goes to the NFL and his last practice or game, he takes his underling, his successor onto the field in the swamp and was just like, this is yours. He basically passes the torch to the guy. Yeah. And then you see the growing pains they go to because they lose that that mojo, that figure. And really the person who picks it up is not that linebacker. It's Tim Tebow. Tim mm-hmm. Tebow also has a sort of fanatical conviction 
yeah. within him, right? Also, going back to Siler, right? Siler was the one who could have gone to the NFL that year and didn't, right? Yeah. And then they lost, right? Mm-hmm. And he like literally gave up all that. Like that was a, that was another interesting moment. You talk about when they I forgot who he's talking about. They had the conversation of why they wanted to stay that season, and not go to the pro. He kind of casually decided, like you know, the team before the dream, really. In this conversation, is like it, it's actually like it's almost reminds me of the Johnny Manziel moment where they're trying to like write down what they want to do, and it's all just like we want to go party with X, Y, Z, which is cool. They do it, but this one's more like we really want we want to win that championship. And that was the moment that really clicked for me, but in terms of like what championship means, like to the region, uh, to the participants, like to give up that I'll say like golden ticket. He would I forgot he would have gone the first round, I think they described at that moment to win that championship and, and then to not win that championship and still pass down a positive message about that system, like and where you have to be in that. That was one of the highlights of that story, right? It's kind of a understated a little bit, I think, in in the way it's depicted with that conversation. I was like, man, to give up that and not win that championship. Wow, that's Something. gotta sting. <laughs> yeah, really gotta sting. But you see that that was an era where they were willing to pass up that golden ticket uh, because it meant so much. Like there was intrinsic meaning in yeah. the sport. And I'm not saying it's the most pragmatic decision. It's pretty insane. I don't think I would even be able to probably make it, but you got to give someone props for choosing like their heart over money. And they, yeah. he still, I don't think he ended up going in the first round too. I think his kind of stock went down a little, but he did go, he did make his money, but it wasn't quite the same. But this all starts really in a, in a unique space. It's it's the Urban Meyer story, right? And then it turns into a little bit of the Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow story. And to set the scene for college football fans or non-college football fans, he's going into Florida when they've been down for a little bit, but they had a decade of like incredible success under Steve Spurrier. And Steve Spurrier is one of those coaches who became almost synonymous with Florida. He was the face of Florida. I don't know why he left. I think it was a controversy. I think it was some sort of a scandal or recruiting violation or some reason. Because I don't see him ever leaving. He was a type of coach that could have been there, in my opinion, until he was like 92, uh-huh. which can happen in college football. Bobby Bowden at Florida State coached until his like late 80s. Like They'll just stay till they're like almost on their deathbed. Joe Paterno at Penn State, uh, the Notre Dame coach, Lou Holtz. Uh, there's just a ton of them who just like, like politicians. They have tenure and they don't leave. So the thing about that is he immediately comes into all these expectations that are unreal, right? And he loses to Steve Spurrier, who's now in South Carolina, which is a far inferior institution. I don't want to be mean or talk shit on any you know fan base or anything. I don't really care. I'm not a big SEC person, but just from a neutral outsider perspective, Florida is a school. Like, you know, I mean, it has the bigger attractability to it just on paper in history than South Carolina. So he's immediately kind of on the, the shit list, the whole community, right? He talks about how he can't go to a restaurant without getting booed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He has some intense stories about the locals. And it's cutthroat. And so you see what that does to him. It turns him to an even more perfectionist, like a fixated, obsessive, compulsive winner, almost at all costs, where he's taking Ambien, drinking too much, having panic attacks. He's filled with self-doubt. I didn't know that. That was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of elephants in the room, by the way, of what they don't cover on this. Uh, we'll get to that. But right now, I just want to cover what they did show. I want to treat it on its basis of what we got. And I was really surprised to learn that Urban Meyer, one of the coaches who I felt had it all. And like, to me, when you have it all and you win, you must have just like an endless confidence actually was just crippled with anxiety 
uh-huh. and doubt. Like his players had more confidence than he did. He couldn't sleep the night before big games. What did you take away from that? I found that fascinating. I never see coaches really disclose that level of insecurity. Yeah, they don't, a- but they also like there's refreshing because like the, the picks, the conditions in which he came over where you have to be perfect. And that's the standard. It's always going to be the standard. And that that is consistent throughout this documentary, it obviously leads to success. It also leads to some crazy ass situations. But I think the way he rises to that standard, I will say, he kind of embodies it. And I will say, like, even though the players have more confidence, he bears a load of that responsibility to agree that we don't really see other coaches, at least like particularly like all these docs that we cover, like keep to themselves. Like you're not going to see Cliff Kingsbury like that hard on himself and that sullen when he loses. Like I love the scenes of the press conferences because these are press conferences I've never seen. And his legit like almost like toddler like face and behavior like when you when you're young and you hate to lose. Right. He hasn't lost that. And it, here's it's actually professional. Uh, it's a personal like necessity because his job is always on the line, despite the success, right? Of that he always that he eventually finds and does find in consistency. His job is always on the line because in that narrative of perfection and reaching as close to it as possible, you have to maintain it. And like the fact that he does, it's inevitable that he hits that that point, like you talk about, where he's it impacts his health. And he's refreshingly pretty open about it, which I which I again I'm not familiar with his background or anything like that. Those are all super highlights, just painted paint I think a great quality of him. And someone you'd want to play for, right? That's one thing you kind of get from him for sure. Like he's, he's someone you'd want to play for, which is why I think that so many people bought into it and were willing to go through such great depths to find success. I, I kind of see it. Like he, he is what you see on the camera, like based on these, like these historical clips and his personal interviews. Like he gives that one story of a player, he had a cut one time and he went back to the life of like substance abuse. And the way he carries that with him doesn't come off as like, like one for the cameras, if you will. Right. It's like, he understands the significance of like cutting people, right? Right. Here's someone who took it on himself, full responsibility, because he learned a lesson like of life and death, like taking opportunity means something. Like opportunity is everything in this sport. It's everyone has a real, like, like every, all these docs we covered are all about these individual opportunities, these individual paths of finding success. Here's one of the few ones where you have someone who actually talks about the significance of cutting someone. And it going wrong and how it really impacted them and how it impacts them in every decision they make since then. Um, whether you think he's right or wrong, uh, you don't ever hear that from a coach. Take that much responsibility for what is their job, right? Right. Urban Meyer, the way that kind of haunts him, right? And he still pushes through and uses this as a as a beacon to gauge success and to make exceptions to succeed. I gotta kind of give it to him for that. I'm like, wow, that's there's there's a level of earnestness and sincerity in there. And just like conviction to winning still all in one. That is, I've never heard that from a coach. So yeah, uh, I was, I was kind of blown away by that, that particular episode and the way it kind of lines up with the fourth episode. And again, reflecting on the whole, whole dynasty. Yeah. The funny thing about that is that it's a really hard sell for me, actually. And what's amazing is that he sold it. Like he did feel so earnest and sincere about his regret and contrition for cutting a kid who ended up getting killed and using that as what I believe is also a very convenient alibi for not cutting players who get in trouble. Because they had a dynamic in Florida of the hotshot team who wins a national championship, and then all these players are just getting inundated with attention. They're on top of the world. Their egos are sky high, and they're in Florida. Mm-hmm. And like they do cover this on the series. Like weekly, there's incidents where a player gets a DUI or in a fight or ends up in jail for this and that. 
and they're a team of bad boys. And that's one of the main knocks on this untold uh, episode. I, I call it an episode, but it's a four-parter. It's that, oddly, it's the least untold of all the untold episodes. They don't cover any of the dirt and elephants in the room that everyone knows about. This is a team that had Aaron Hernandez, right? This is a team that had Cam Newton when he stole a laptop. This is a team where Urban Meyer faked a heart attack basically to quit. I want to put a pin in that one, though, and actually talk about that one, because that one's really on topic. I find that fascinating because what we're seeing is this pressure that's so maniacal, that is so absorbed by the person that he's almost forced to fake a heart attack. It's almost psychosomatic. So even if you had a heart attack or or not, if you have to fake a heart attack to quit, you're in a space that you need to quit. Does (laughs) does that make sense to the And What I have not liked about the discourse on this is that everyone only wants to point out that they're not talking about any of the scandals, any of the juicy stuff that went on for this team, right? But they barely even talk about Aaron Hernandez. All we get is the incident with him and Tim Tebow at at like a bar fight. That's it. But at the same time, I actually want to flip the script and say that this might be the most untold version that they could have given. Why? Because the gossip column, the tabloid column, is the most told thing. We all know that so well that we've forgotten why this team was great, why these scandals happen. And it's because of the success on the field as well. So it's interesting. It's almost like seizing the, the narrative again. And people see it as a sort of power move by Urban Meyer to like reshape his his story and image. But I think that in many ways, what we got here was the untold story of this amazing team, of this amazing dynasty of this. And yes, we saw it on the field. We knew they were the national championship winners and that they returned and then they, you know, they had lost the big game and Team Tebow came back or whatever. And they, they won two national championships, almost three, right? Mm-hmm. We know this, but we, we don't have the footage that what went into it, the blood, sweat, and tears. And we really get that through this. We get visceral footage in the locker rooms of these guys just going at it. You see their ferocity, you see their emotion, you see their love of the game. So my takeaway of all this is a tricky one. Like I'm somewhat ambivalent. I recognize that they are completely correct. Like they skimmed over stuff that's pretty astonishing like how do you not use this source material like uh, you're you're given a like silver platter with some of like the greatest college football gossip and notoriety in the 21st century and you don't even touch it it's almost unfathomable at the same time i also get a sense that a lot of this rancor is coming from anti-urban meyer uh denizens sec fans who are diehard fans of other schools rival schools and personally, I just don't give a shit either way about Urban Meyer enough. Like, I, like he's fun to talk crap about sometimes, like especially uh. when he was a Jacksonville coach or whatever. But I, I found the story compelling on its own terms as well. I'll say that. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm just glad that there was some people bringing to light how, you know, in the world of journalism, there's a bunch of <laughs> articles like, how do they not cover this, this, and this, and this? And there is some oddity, especially considering it's an untold episode. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of M.O., is not only to say what's untold, quote unquote, but to say what's untold and kind of like blasphemous or infamous or what's... I think we're finding though, like it's, that's, that's like some of the untold episodes. Now we have like a wider range of stuff and we got that already this season and it wasn't enough for some, a lot of the same critics I'd imagine with like the Johnny Manziel doc, right? That's already this season. You can could get another, like you said, like two episodes out of this, which is yeah. just for the sake of having, like you said, the kind of TMZ drama that you could easily Google search and find out like when they mentioned Aaron Hernandez on the team, like 
my first thought, well, Aaron Hernandez, there's got to be some crazy ass stories there. Right, right. But I'm also thinking there's also, I think there's an untold on Aaron Hernandez, if I remember right, you know, that you can easily go and watch too. So I was kind of finding myself as a viewer, like easily getting it like the green light pass. Cause like, I'm with you on this, like, especially when you start name dropping like Cam Newton, Percy Harvin, all these other people on this team, like who aren't in this documentary, they're just mentioned for whatever reason. I'm, not, you know, I'm just speculating that them either not wanting to participate or, you know, whatever. It seems okay because they still have such a root story with the narrative they built with Tim Tebow, with the defense, you know, with these defensemen that like it's enough to sell like and, you know, still put together a pretty, I'd say, a compelling and like exemplary reason of, of why they're champions. Right. That's the other thing I think is the other point of the untold story is not just the gossip. It's the untold side of success and yada, yada, yada. Right. And that's what they really do well here is again in four episodes, given the f- not the full picture, but the trajectory of Urban Meyer in this uncharted territory, slowly building like this, you know, this fucking suicide squad of fucking uh, college recruits. Right. Making them a place again where people want to come. Versus all these other schools. I love that. That's another good episode. Um, it takes some time to get to like the significance of like, right. When he has, like, again, he talks about like, you know, Tim Tebow, all these other quarterbacks come in and how they allured them. That was fucking fascinating. That's again, that's another thing that I think untold does well is these other parts of the character, the spectacle. Right. And there's ones that are specifically set more for those TMZ ones. I get that. Cause that's probably like, that's really all the pool is. We've covered those. That's the pool of that story. And we're dealing with like a team. I don't think, especially a championship team, right? That is so like secondary to the narrative of, of the group, right? Because then we're just talking about individuals and all that. Um, I guess, like you said, some agree this is the Urban Meyer story, but it's also like a Tim Tebow story. Mm-hmm. Right? I think it's totally, you know, you can pick and choose whose story this is between those two pillars of this doc. But I think like, I think that's fine, is my point. I don't think I need all the juicy gossip stuff because it's very... It's ancillary to it. Like I said, Aaron, Aaron I, I know some of these stories. I remember some, but like you can Google search it. It's not that it's one. I'm not going to say like why bring up. It's not essential to what they're trying to portray here. Right. They're trying to portray like this special group of people turned this losing streak into something special. Right. And that's the untold part of it. I think I think they did a pretty good job of that, to be honest. So I'm finding as, I, as we're doing this, I'm finding myself on the opposite end of a lot of critics on this on this particular dog. I think it comes a lot from like true college football fans. Mm-hmm. and people who covered even the team uh, just them kind of in dismay expecting it to be all of that you know this was a famous like team of bad boys you know mm-hmm. it was just like a ragtag group of they weren't misfits but they were definitely like delinquents there's a lot of mischief going on in this era uh. <laughs> and it does feel like a lot of the salacious stuff should be there, but I'm glad that it wasn't the sole focus of this. That would have been a bummer as well. I think yeah, it right. should have been padded a little bit more with that. But as you noted, Netflix has a three-part docuseries on Aaron Hernandez. I think it's called Killer Inside, The yeah. Mind of Aaron Hernandez, right? And anything else is a quick Google search away from seeing like Urban Meyer, his Wikipedia, I'm sure has all of that on it his fake cardiac arrest, all of the nonsense is going to actually be in there. Not that it's nonsense or not real, but all of the like bad stuff as well. So it kind of got the same discourse and divisiveness that The Last Dance got. It's almost like our template for a documentary where people feel like the subject takes too much of a control over the telling of the story. And people think it's too rose-tinted in its depiction of particularly Urban Meyer. The thing about the other subject of this that you pointed out, and I think I pointed out earlier, Tim Tebow, is that he's almost impervious to criticism, unless you're like, you know, 
going to call him out for being like fanatically Christian, which is fair mm-hmm. or, you know, like a little bit sheltered, but you know, he's philanthropic. He's deadly sincere. Yeah. He dies for his team. He's also fierce. What the dog did for me. Cause I'm, I would come from my first introduction to Tim Debo is when he was more in the NFL at that time, he was the, the Christian poster boy. Right. That's literally what my introduction is to him. Like that was, so like to see more, not to say the other side, because he is a very put together, nuanced, deliberate with his message. But when he talks about football, seeing his passion and him again, reliving the memories of these games was was one of the highlights of this of the show. Like there's there's a lot of like construction on him where he has, like you said, he always has to say the right thing. Like we talked about Aaron Hernandez story, right? It's kind of like a cliche. I wish I could have done more. Like he didn't kill the guy, dude. Like it's Aaron Hernandez. Someone said some racist shit. He was going to probably kick the crap out of him regardless of what you were going to do anyways. Like Tim Tebow, you're not going to stop Aaron Hernandez. Sorry. Like, you know, it's it's one of those situations. I get, I get it. Like he's performative there, but there's these moments of like just genuine, like, reliving the game and like those moments in the locker room like i like the part we talked about how special the locker room was i mean everyone kind of in the documentary talked about that you know what was going on there what made it so special but as it's like you know this place like like of just like fusion of where they'd come together and like they're all working towards this one goal and i i did like the way the other players really like contextualize that tim tebow is genuinely like you said that super christian dude who doesn't want to partake but wants to be around this stuff enough to like view it Right. And, and then like proceed and go back to like the work, which I thought was, you know, it was interesting the way they confirmed me. I like, I forgot, I think it was, I think it was Siler, right? Might have been Siler. Mm-hmm. I think it was Siler Spikes. They talked about the first time they brought Tim Tebow to a party, right? All the girls wanted to talk to him and he thought they were talking about Siler. Like he's like, man, I was, I was recruiting. He's like, last time I ever took Tebow to a party, right? You know, it's like, it's like stuff like that. But they, they always talk about, you know, he really was that dude who was, you know, he's like, the shy guy he didn't partake in any of that stuff he was very focused on football and it does come across that way when he talks about football he is more passionate about football than obviously his money which he has a lot of uh the women who are after him i i, I do kind of buy into like him being the super christian but it makes me it makes me again we always use the word like respect him more uh look at him as a competitor differently that's one thing it definitely made me do because coming into what like when i was first introduced to him he was just like i'll say he was kind of like a crybaby of the NFL too. That's the other thing was like, that was the narrative around him as well. He's like, he's just this big baby kind of thing, unfortunately. And that's not at all the case when you watch this dog, dude, this dude was a fucking a competitor. He was a baller. It, it made me rethink how hard uh, I was on Tim Tebow. It's just like a casual fan, just how hard everyone was on Tim Tebow, if I'm being honest. Cause I was like pretty like early when I was like, like when I was really getting back into watching football a little more often. And he was definitely the dude me and my roommates would chirp pretty hard from a second of being complete cynics and assholes. But I definitely like uh, look at him with more respect after seeing this dog. That was one thing I, I could totally say. I was like, wow, like this dude was, was something in college. I did not fully respect or know that. In many ways, he reminds me of uh, uh, Josh Allen. Because Josh Allen could kind of bulldoze people, yet he has a good arm. Yeah. But why I say that is like, other than that, Tim Tebow type quarterbacks rarely pan out well in the NFL. But I think that was hard because I think he was probably the most hyped quarterback besides maybe like Peyton Manning and one or two others in the last like 30 years in college football. Like they capture that too. They capture like the media optics and hysteria and marketability of him really well. Like he was a true phenomenon. Yes, the Johnny Manziel one has that, but Johnny Manziel was kind of a flash in the pan fun story. Same with Monty Teo. Mm -hmm. Tim Tebow was the face of college football for two seasons. And even before he came, he was kind of already like 
making major ripples in the conversation and in the sport. Mm -hmm. And so he had such a burden on his shoulders and he in many ways was parallel to Urban Meyer in that. Both of them also have to deal with a sport that is very different than the NFL. And many people like to critique college football for not having a true playoff. Now they've created a 14 playoff. Oh, okay. But there's over 100 teams in Division One college football, and only four teams get a possibility of winning the championship, even today. I think 15 or so years ago, there wasn't even that. It was just the top two get a play. When you do that, and you have a 12-game, 13-game regular season, you lose one game, you're probably out. Yeah, that's why I found crazy watching that. Yeah, you lose two, and your chances are slim to none. So the margin of error is infinitesimal in college football, which adds to it as well. That's another thing that really gives the sport urgency and intensity is any given Saturday, your season could be over. Like if you lose to a bad team, if you just have a bad day, if you have three turnovers in the red zone and a, yeah. and a fumble on a punt return, you could be done. And that level of perfectionism that's demanded every single week has to add to like the pressure. So found that sort of exploration here of the psyche under extreme duress prolonged over a season like that. And I know every sport has that, but you know, the playoffs are only a few weeks, yeah. a few games in the NFL and the regular season, there's a lot of stress, but there is that feeling. I know it's there. You can sense it even, even the quarterbacks that like we're playing hard. We're showing up. They're focused. They're committed. They're putting themselves to the ringer week in and week out. But I think there is a, a subtle sense of lightness and that if we lost this week, we're still capable of having our goals. It's also interesting because it, it does bring up a thing we've seen actually hard knocks kind of cover it sometimes with like rookies who get drafted onto like losing or mediocre teams and struggling with the mental switch of always winning or knowing you're always going to win. Cause that's why you said, yeah, that's the standard. And like, that's the level you compete at. Like you said, losing two, like is, you know, it's crazy, but like, you know, losing three or four is unfathomable. That's a norm for some teams. And, and a lot of teams in the NFL, you could still be competitive, right? And that's a weird mental switch for a lot of these teams who are held to such a high standard, not saying the NFL is a higher standard, but like, you know, it's a different mental shift that you see people struggle with, right? That anticipation of like being able to compete. And when you get into the bigger pond, right? Switching your mindset of what it is to win and lose, like the long-term battle just changes. And that's one thing I, I thought was one of the better parts about this was the way they, they hit that like margin of error, just like right on two losses or one losses and like find a way to win. But just was awesome with the culmination of the footage they put together for this. Yeah, I believe it's Trevor Lawrence. I'm not sure if it's him. I think he's a player who never lost a game. It was him. In college or high school ball. Yeah. And so he goes in and he never wins a game basically his first season. And just imagine that yeah. shift. It's got to be <laughs> wild. Be crazy. Yeah. But I agree. Uh, it was really funny to see this bad boy team and their leader, as we said, being the most clean cut, no tattoos, missionary <laughs> work Captain America guy in, in the world, right? Like giving handshakes with Obama when they win the championship. And you know Obama actually personally singles him out, right? Like he's beloved by like the cream of the crop. He's like the goody two shoes, right? Mm -hmm. Of America. Like we love Tebow uh -huh. because he doesn't say anything wrong. He can't do wrong. And it's not only that he's Christian, but he's homeschooled and he's homeschooled in a very like puritanical farmer's way. So he's got his like hands on the soil and the earth. He's got this like yeah. hard grain toughness to him as well. He's like well-spoken is the only thing I found through this. Like he knows how to say all the right things. He has a great cadence in his voice where despite his massive size, he seems like a very like gentle giant. And mm -hmm. he's another thing he's kind of got going for him. I see that more and more too. I think he's really trying to 
in some ways echo a pastor's rhetorical style. Yeah. That's sort yeah, of I got softness. that from his yeah. Yeah, yeah, his kid, like the way he recaps stories, and he always finds a he's good. Yeah, he's good. He's a good yarn spinner. I thought, mm-hmm. right? Because even his anecdotes, he finds a kind of like moral anecdote to leave you with, which is yeah, good. Good public speaker. I thought after watching this. Yeah, but he's also so savage. Like when he's just bulldozing players. Oh yeah, dude. Some of the footage, man. Yeah, like you said, when like when they called him Superman, like he was guaranteed to get you those like those fourth and inches or whatever, man. Yeah, those, some of those footage was fucking awesome in that. Exactly. And so you could see that he completely embodied Myers take no prisoners approach, right? They were chasing perfection and they were also playing in like we like you mentioned the SEC which is a pugilistic such a defensive minded conference. It's so gladiatorial. I think one of the talking heads in it said the SEC is kill or be killed. Yeah. It's two sledgehammers hitting each other over the head. And so like that quote, I think is, was really fitting to really set the scene for people of like, it's a very physical conference. Whereas like the Pac-12 is all theatrics, like the scores in that is like 49 to 56, you know, no defense, all offense. The SEC, a game is going to be like 17 to 14. It's actually like solid, grinded out in the trenches football. And so they had to have that toughness. They had to have that obduracy and they really did. What this also to me was a study of was the impossibility of sustaining that, mm-hmm. but also the valiant aspiration to try to, right? Definitely. Yeah. So, Especially like, uh, sorry to cut you off, but the moment that stuck out to me was when they do win it and Urban Meyer goes, or then everyone says, like kind of confirm it, goes into this office to make calls for like, to recruits, you know, to make text messages, you know, reach out to age, et cetera, you know, let the next generation know this is where you want to be, right? This is this is like again all business to the next while everyone else is like you know popping champagne, we start figuring out where they go party at. It's definitely a standout moment, like in terms of like we, where we already talked about the pressure, maintaining resiliency, and like really thinking of you know the next. It's it's just always moving. That's one thing I thought was interesting about this one compared to some of the other stuff we covered, like the role of the coach and it being this always functioning thing beyond the off season and postseason and that type of work, right? Particularly for college, like. The next set of recruits, like the next generation, right? It's different than the NFL. That was one thing I thought was fascinating. Like a lot of those things, just so much pressure, right? Because that's so much like forecasting. That's just different than than what you're doing when you're drafting from the top of the crowd class and all that stuff. Uh, it's a different kind of like sales pitch, which, you know, teams still have to do for top recruits. But to do it like, you know, while you're celebrating, man, what a fucking salesman right there, dude. That's like a used car salesman move in like the best way. Oh, totally. And it, it was really interesting after they win that championship. Not only does he call in recruits, but he, I think he tells his dad that like he'll never have pressure again or something like that or forever. He'll be absolved uh. of that chip on his shoulder or like that punch on his back. And I love that he very plainly says, I've never been more wrong in my life. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the truth. Once you win, it's what when are you going to win next? Yeah. And you're not only that, you're everyone's target. You're put on a pedestal. Now you have to fight out all the noise and you have to help enforce and somehow manage basically young adults, I'll call them, but basically adolescents mm-hmm. for the freshmen and sophomores. These are young kids. They are often quite immature. And so it's it's a task. And it's a really, really tough and tricky task to keep them focused. And we saw that season, the follow-up, where they came out really poorly the first few games because they just thought they were the shit. Yeah. And then they had a reality check. And then they had that moment that it switched and Tebow took control, basically. And then they they went straight back until they lost to Alabama. 
in the championship. And it's, I love it, the day the Gators died and Tebow cried is the phrase for that game. And that's the rise of Alabama, the rise of Nick Saban. And if you look at Nick Saban, he was on Coach Prime that that series, the first episode. He just looks weathered. People say presidents age, like, I forget the (laughs) quote exactly, but like they age exponentially more. College football coaches, they become senile in like a few years. Like it just destroys them. It's got to be the one of the most taxing professions there is. You see that you burn brightly, but you burn out quickly. And that definitely happened here. And so remarkable story, um, a remarkable team, a team that really captured my attention. And I don't normally care too much about teams actually from the SEC. I, I just don't. And so I was surprised at how intoxicated I was by this story. They were as sexy as uh, the Trojans. And I hate the Trojans. They're like, uh, you know, my family's rival. But like, uh, man, the Pete Carroll era of the Trojans deserves a treatment like this. You know, yeah. Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart era was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Pete Carroll was top five greatest college football coaches of all time. And it was filled with issues as well. The Reggie Bush Heisman controversy, so many scandals, you know, off the field, on the field, the same stuff. Some of the most epic games ever played. So maybe that'll be the next one. Maybe that'll be the next one. So anyways, I think we covered this very well. It's it's really, like I said at the very beginning, a long untold four-parter. So it's a total of three hours. But if for anyone who just wants to get a really in-depth depiction of the visceral intensity of college football, I think this will give you some insight. Uh, For you, where do you rate this, underdog or overrated? Uh, I'm going to say underdog for sure. Like for sure, especially because I think there's like, uh, like we kind of talk here. There's a, I'll say like a misconception of what untold is. It's all full blown like untold gossip thing of all that, right? It's definitely more dissective of aspects of like of the topic and the genres in which it falls in. And I think this one's really focused on the genre of competition, which is sometimes taken for granted. I think in the realm of sports, and this one really explores it. I would say pretty thoroughly. Through the subjects they got on board. That's one thing I think, you know, like maybe mentioned, there's like 50 plus players on a roster. This one really only has maybe what, four or five that we do like interviews with. I could be wrong on that. It was six. Mm-hmm. But their stories and like, again, the, the telling of the competitiveness and what this particular point in history meant, right, for this league and this school and all that. I think it does a really good job of just framing it for the uninitiated and giving you something to invest in. So I, I'm going to say uh, underdog for sure. I want to agree, which is crazy because so much vitriol was thrown at this. Uh And I'm actually aware of it and able to compartmentalize it. Like, I understand that this makes Urban Meyer look like an angel sent from heaven. And that's bullshit. Uh, I also understand that, like, Tim Tebow is such a goody two-shoe that, like, Monty Teo, in comparison, looks like a Satanist. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Tim Tebow ain't falling for that. Yeah. Uh-uh. Um, but but like you noted, what's I think most interesting about this is that it questions our notion and our assumption of what untold means and is, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like we assume it has to be provocation and salaciousness, but sometimes the opposite is true, or sometimes that's just irrelevant. And I think that if they just focused on the controversies, we would have missed a really remarkable story. And I think that the way they wove the what I'll call the Gator Dynasty into a a very like compelling four part docu series and executed it in an emotional and rousing way is worth celebrating. Yes, I'm all for like a supplemental or complimentary documentary that's just like you know Swamp Kings the the gossip or like you know what I mean for or, sure. But for what this 
sets out to do and does regardless of if it had like some sort of conniving or manipulation, right? Regardless of whether it's too hagiographic and it paints everyone in too diluted and sanitized and glossy of a light, it's an exciting representation of, to me, everything that college football stands for and is, and is messiness. Like, I think it does show its messiness. And so definitely check this out. So on that note, where can our audience members engage with us? Give us the flattery, just shower us with sweet nothings and positive feedback and just feed our egos because we need it. We need it really. Place for positive energy is obviously Twitter. So you want to go to your Twitter, open that up and look at that and feel really good about yourself. And then- Hit us up and, uh, you know, let us know. Let us know who you think is getting into heaven first, Monty Teo or Tim Tebow. You start there. That's a good one. I don't know the odds on that one, but but yeah, you, you can, we can we can battle out who you think would win in a celebrity death match, Tim Tebow or Monty Teo. I'd definitely like to see that one. Um, I love that. Or I broke the match earlier, Aaron Hernandez versus Tim Tebow trying to break up a fight. That's, how do you think that plays out if Aaron Hernandez was telling that story? I'd like to hear that as well. Uh, but of course, you can find us on Spotify. Um, I mentioned Twitter already. You can hit us up on there. Anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And of course, use that Google search engine. Help us out with our SEO results. I would also love to see Urban Meyer versus Pete Carroll. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Okay, I like that. Put together like an episode, a three-fight episode, a celebrity death match with college, like, college football icons. I, I like that. that. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Reggie Bush versus Deshaun Watson. That's a good one too. <laughs> Except for, I think it's because like, Reggie Bush is controversial to a degree why that seems fitting, but their controversies are very different. Very different, right? <laughs> Reggie Bush rightfully has a billboard that someone put up saying give him his Heisman back in LA and his Heisman being taken away is bullshit. It's the same thing that Johnny Manziel did is what he did. And Johnny Manziel gets to live uh, with his uh, Heisman. So anyways, you got a Heisman and an untold. I'm with you, Paul. Where's the Reggie Bush untold? Here it is. We need Reggie Bush versus Johnny Manziel celebrity death match. The winner gets the Heisman. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I like that. All right. I just need to bring back celebrity death match. I think that's yeah. the point of this conversation. <laughs> the moral of the story. That's the, that's the purpose of our podcast. That's our mission statement. It's our manifesto. And we're like Aaron Rodgers. We're just materializing it into reality. All right, signing off. Peace.